Please join me as we read Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You've ever seen the movie uh, Wall Street with Michael Douglas as Gordon Gecko, and he, he just stands before his peers and says, Greed is good. Well, um, that's a new idea. Historically, greed is seen to be kind of a sin that reaches its fingers into the heart of men and women. Yeah, out of all these deadly sins, this is probably the one that's least confessed. Uh, you know, over the years of ministry, um, people have confessed uh, to me pride, definitely, uh, envy, without a doubt, uh, anger, yes, often. Sloth, last week Carol just confessed all week long about sloth. <laughs> Said enough already. Uh, but gluttony, yes. Uh, lust, of course. But no one has ever confessed greed. So I want to look at the nature of greed. What is it? You know, to define it. Following the same pattern in these past few weeks. And then... And then what does it look like in your life? How does it manifest itself? What are the symptoms of it? It's very difficult to identify. And then, and then how to kill it. Again, what ought we to do with this awareness that it exists within each one of us? So, so first, what, you know, what is greed? Well, you notice in the parable, Jesus kind of addresses it straight on. He has this unnamed man. This unnamed man comes and tells Jesus, or asks Jesus, to tell his brother to divide this inheritance. Now, we don't know the backdrop of the story. We don't know if the brother's trying to finagle something out of him, but he's looking at Jesus as kind of being a Pharisee, a teacher, you know, kind of make a ruling. He's not asking for Jesus' opinion, but give us a ruling on this issue. And of course, Jesus uh, doesn't do it. What he's doing, though, is he takes the longing within this man, the longing for wealth, and he uses that as, as kind of a, a move to explain the dangers of greed, the dangers of it. He says, you know, be on your guard, you know, take care. Your life doesn't consist in the abundance of treasure. So, so he's kind of warning us about greed. Well, what is greed? Well, I would say this is a simple working definition. That greed is an excessive love for money or for the things that money can buy. It's an excessive love for money or the things that money can buy. Now, the, the old English word is avarice. Avarice is, is a word comes from the Latin root of craving, that we're longing, we're desiring, we're wishing for these things. 
And theologians will tell us it's a disordered love. It's an inordinate love. In other words, what do I mean by that? I mean that the value of the object that you are longing for is not worth your veneration. It is not worth the pursuit and the longing that you put forth to it. So when we speak about greed, we can be greedy, we can be lustful, we can be longing for a person's body, for their spirituality, for their lifestyle. But generally, greed applies more to money because it gets those things that we desire so deeply and so desperately. You know, there's a song by Queen, a British rock band, that says, I want it all. And the refrain is, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, I want it now. That's the heart of greed, that I want more. I'm not satisfied with what I have. And and this is known as a capital sin. It's a sin that, that people call it a mother because it gives birth to many other sins such as perjury and anger and envy, thievery, deceit, fraud, even murder. It's, it's a sin, Paul says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root. It's the love of it. It's the desire for it. It's the longing for it. And that's the nature of greed. You know, Frederick Nietzsche was no friend of Christianity, but he predicted a time where our love for God would be replaced with a love for money, that, that money would be a counterfeit to God. And here's what he writes. What induces one man to use false weights, another to set his house on fire after having insured it for more than its value? While three-fourths of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud, what gives rise to all of this? It is not real want, for their existence is by no means precarious, but they are urged on day and night by a terrible impatience at seeing their wealth pile up so slowly and by an equally terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. What once was done for the love of God is now done for the love of money, i.e. for the love of that which at present affords us the highest feeling of power and a good conscience. I mean, this is, if you think that greed is simply indicated by closets full of clothes and having ten credit cards, you might be right, but it would be superficial. So greed is an issue of the heart. It's a matter of worship. And that's why Jesus says, just a little bit further, you can't serve God and mammon. You know, he holds mammon up, or money, he holds it up to be a counterfeit God, a God opposite God, a God that you can love, a God that you can trust, a God that you can pursue, that you can find security and significance in. And money's seeking to be that for you. It wants to be that kind of God. And Jesus is explaining to us this dynamic but dangerous relationship between our personal wealth and our spiritual health. That's why he spends 15% of all of his teaching is on money. Two-thirds of the parables deal with money. That's all they deal with. He speaks more about money than he does sex. See, see greed is not simply an issue of Wall Street. It's really on, on every street. You know, Some people will say, well, capitalism is what breeds greed. Capitalism doesn't breed greed. You can have it in communism and socialism. It's a matter of the heart. It's not a system. So how do we, how do we discern this? You know, defining greed is easy, uh, but discerning it in your heart is not. I mean, do you sense greed in your heart? Now, I, I want to be careful here because, you know, 
Jesus isn't condemning wealth per se, and he's not eleva- elevating poverty per se. And, and, and I want to be, di- be careful here because we all have to work, and we, we all make money. And, and, and so there, there's, a, there's, a, boy, there's a lot of the devil's in the details, so to speak. It's like gluttony for next week. We all have to eat, but how much is too much? When do you cross that line from, from having wealth and preparing for the future as we're encouraged with the ant before it moves into something different? So it's, it's very difficult. Uh, but let me give you two pictures, and, and these are extremes. If you read what Ray wrote to the church regarding kind of finding an extreme example and then figuring that you're okay because you're not there, uh, I appreciate that. I, I want to give you two extreme examples, but I want us where are we on the continuum of this thing? So two pictures of what greed might look like in your life. So I, I want to now kind of show you its symptoms. Uh, greed can appear as the miser or the consumer. So let's use those as our poles. The miser or the consumer. The miser is the one who wants to have and to hold, not in terms of the marital covenant, but in terms of the things that he has. I want to have it. I want to hold it. I don't want to lose it. So think Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, the miser won't even use his own money on himself often, as you see him in old rags and a cold office, and he won't even spend a little extra for bread at dinner. You know, there's this idea of of kind of, I want to keep it all for myself. Now, if you are to only think of the miser as kind of the old, cold, crusty man who sits in a dark room kind of rifling through his coins, you would would make a mistake. He can be a very nice, well-dressed, hard-working conscientious person like the man in our story here you know the parable he's a farmer he's a hard worker he's conscientious he's a good saver but you see that when his bumper crop comes in he wants to build bigger barns tear down perfectly good ones we're going to build bigger ones he doesn't want to lose one grain not one grain will he lose he wants to keep it all you know the nature and the heart of the miser is is trying to deal with the fear that comes from possible anxiety over the future the heart of the miser is trying to find his trust in riches. It's not that he doesn't believe in God. He's just resting more on the things that he has. He's trusting more in what he can acquire. The heart of the miser is seen more in greed looking like, I want to keep it. You know what? I could need that one day. I better not get rid of it. I, I, I bet you one day I might need that. And so you just see the accumulation of things as kind of staving off any sort of fear for the future. Okay, the other picture would be, the converse would be the consumer. This is the greed that is displayed in the joy that comes from the acquisition of new things or better things or more things. This is where we we find happiness in terms of, you know, uh, what we have. This is the kind of the idea of not just what we have, but even the types of things that we have. So in other words, maybe J. Crew or something from Chanel or something from Kate Spade. It has to have a name to it. Why? Because the consumer is one that is finding his or her identity in the things that they have or the things that they wear or the lifestyle that they live. That the consumer, the, hot, uh, the shopaholic, or the fashionista kind of thing. Uh, that, that there is a, a confidence and a comfort comes in the now from what I have. 
Now this is, this is probably where the tilt of our country is, away from the miser. Why? Because one in four Americans have savings. So it seems like the miserly bug has not bitten us too, too bad. It's kind of going the other way. The average consumer debt at the end of 86 among Americans was, was close to 17000 just in credit card debt. Card debt was 28000 on average. So $780 billion on consumer debt for this country alone. $1.3 trillion in auto debt. So, I mean, we, we know spending seems to be in the blood. You know, when we lived in a um, parsonage at the first church, the house was 110 years old. And so uh, closets were were kind of an oddity. Carol and I couldn't even stand together in one of the closets. Now you can park your car in some of the closets. So things have, things have changed. So, so what, what strikes you? What do you see in your life? Do you tend towards the miser where there's fear of the future, there's trying to do everything you can do to secure the future by the resources that you can gather and hold on to now? Or would it be more of the joy that comes from the new, that I, I have to have that kind of attitude? Uh, where would you fall? You know, I, I used to think that the miser was the more righteous road because that was the road that, of course, I traveled on. And uh, when Carol and I got married, we, uh, I was a practicing CPA, and so we did the budget. And for Carol to do the budget with me was always a very difficult experience. And because I felt very self-righteous in the desire to hold on and to live a frugal life and to be mindful about where the dollars went. And uh, she came into our marriage with a Sears credit card. Anybody got Sears credit cards in that day? And, um, and she was more of the Epicurean. She thought it was good. Money was good for the economy. And, and so we kind of would have these meetings. And I was convicted that my frugality was as much idolatry as a person who might try to find their satisfaction and meaning and purpose in spending. They're both two sides of the same coin. This isn't just a theoretical discussion we're having. I mean, this has got huge implications regarding greed and the idolatry of money. And you see that as Jesus speaks for God when he calls the man a fool. He calls him a fool. Uh, he, he warns us, take care. You know, be on guard. You know, this type of sin is not like gluttony. It's not like adultery. You know those things when you're doing them. But greed isn't so, it's more deceptive. It's a little more sly. But the dangers are there. Uh, let me just roll through a few dangers if, to kind of awaken you. Again, like last week, kind of the smelling salts to kind of wake you to the reality of, of the dangers of greed. Greed will alienate you from your true self. It'll alienate you from your true self. Notice what Jesus says in the parable. He says, before the parable, for a man's life, a woman's life, does not consist in the abundance of his or her possessions. We tend to think that the more we have, the better we are. There's this sense of um, my personal worth 
is somehow tied into my personal wealth. Uh, that, that if my cars are nicer and my clothes are sharper and my lifestyle is better, that somehow I'm on the cutting edge of life. And what greed does is it narrows our humanity. We've been made into the image of God. We have been stamped with his image. And so to reduce ourselves to finding value and meaning and significance and purpose from the things that we wear, the things that we eat, the things that we drive, the houses that we live in, it narrows our humanity. It really makes us more like the beasts. We're driven by lust and urges over things, and the advertising agencies are just at the end pulling the string. And so it reduces our very humanity. We no longer see ourselves as image bearers of God being prepared and cultivated for a forever of glory with God, and we reduce ourselves to finding out just really excited about the new car I got. Now again, I tried to put a caveat in the beginning. Having a nice new car, if you've been driving a junker and you can trust that it will get you from A to B, is a great thing. I don't mean that. But you know what I'm speaking about. It's on that continuum of desiring and loving those things. It, it warps our identity. And, and it makes us less than we are. It reduces us and alienates us from our true self. But secondly, it alienates us from our neighbor. You know, Jesus said about how we are called to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. But, but greed alienates us. It makes us solitary. People that are rich can tend to be a little bit skittish about who their friends are. And you see it in the case of this man. This man, notice that it says um, the land of the rich man was plentiful. He was already rich. And now he had the bumper crop. And so the dilemma came in is, what do I do with this bumper crop? And that's when he said, I'll tear down the big barns and put up even bigger barns. This idea of there's no concern for the neighbor. There's, there's no concern for the weak or the downtrodden or those that might need help. Uh, you notice that even in just the two verses of the parable, because that's all the parable is, those two verses, nine times he uses the word I or my. It's all about him. He says, I, <clears throat> so I said to my soul, he speaks to his soul, <clears throat> he doesn't speak to God. He doesn't involve God. He doesn't look at his neighbor. He just goes ahead and thinks, I'm going to build bigger barns. <clears throat> Thereby not serving, not asking God, what ought I do to do, what ought I to do with this influx of money? Should it be given? Should it help? Should it serve in some capacity? You know, just last week, sloth prevented the priest and the Levite from helping the Jewish traveler who was wounded on the road going to Jerusalem. Well, now greed is preventing the rich man from helping others. It probably doesn't surprise you that the temptation is the richer we get, the more we want to keep. You see this in giving patterns of people that the percentage of giving uh, of those making less than 20,000 is double that making from 75 to 100 in proportion, you know, as a percentage. That the state that is the poorest in our nation, Mississippi, actually gives as a percentage of income more than any state in the nation. Why is that? Why, why, why is the fact that this country has close to two-thirds of the world well, world's wealth. We have close to 3% of the world's population. And that close to 50% are still in some financial dilemma. 
Why is that? Because greed brings us to ourselves. We need more. We want more. And it alienates us from our neighbor. But it also alienates us from God. You, know, you, you notice the rich man, as I said, he said to his soul, he didn't speak to God. You see no gratitude. You don't see the name of God in it. He has, at this point, he doesn't need God. He has everything. He doesn't thank God for the rain, for the sun, both of which are necessary. He doesn't thank God that his ground happens to be very fertile and very productive. There's no mention of it. Why? Because he doesn't need it. Greed moves us away from needing God. Why? We trust in our riches. I mean, to have a month's worth of bread, it's hard to say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Why? I got a month in the freezer. You know, these things tend to work against an active trust relationship with God. And we develop kind of a self-sufficiency. We would never say that, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't say that absolutely. But in terms of our practical daily lives, it's a battle. We just don't seem to need them. It alienates us from that daily dependence on God. Why would he say, give us this day our daily bread? He's trying to inculcate in us this reminder that we need him. You need him for breath. When you lay your head down, you don't know that you're going to get up the next day. Frederick Buechner uh, wrote this about greed. He says, uh, the greed for the rich. He says, the trouble with being rich is that since you can solve with your checkbook virtually all practical problems that bedevil ordinary people, you are left in your leisure with nothing but the great human problems to contend with. How to be happy, how to love and be loved, how to find meaning and purpose in life. In desperation, the rich are continually tempted to believe that they can solve these problems too with their checkbooks, which is presumably what led Jesus to remark one day that for a rich man to get to heaven is about as easy as for a Cadillac to go through a revolving door. It's just difficult because it alienates us from this daily trust in God. And then last, it alienates you from true joy and satisfaction that we all want, that we all, we all want meaning and value and significance in life, and things alienate you from that. Why? Because greed puts you on this relentless pursuit of more. You can't be happy. Greed whispers in your ear, if I only had that, then I'd be happy. I, I mean, do you ever feel a twinge of envy when you hear about someone coming into a cash or the lottery winner? Do you ever think, oh, if I just had 15,000 bucks, just 15,000 bucks, then I'd be able to do boom, 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 boom. Then I'd be, I'd be free, I'd be happy, I'd be okay, I'd be, I'd be in the clear. Then I'd be happy, God. There's this Roman proverb that says, greed is like drinking seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. I mean, the, the old adage, the guy or the gal that dies with the most toys wins. Is that true? I mean, I, I want to remind you that it's not true. You know, take Elvis Presley for a moment. When he died, let me just read you a quick list of a couple of the toys that he had when he died. He had three jets, two Cadillacs, one Rolls, a Lincoln Continental, two station wagons, Jeep, custom touring bus, three motorcycles. His favorite car was a 60 Naga Hyde or a Cadillac limousine. Top was covered with pearl white Naga Hyde. I don't know how to pronounce that. And, and the body was sprayed with 40 coats of a specially prepared paint that included crushed diamonds. Nearly all the metal trim was plated with 18 karat gold. There were two gold flake telephones. 
There were a gold vanity case, gold electric razor, gold hair clippers, electric shoe buffer, gold-plated television, a record player. Sorry for any of you under 40. Amplifier, air conditioner, an electrical system for operating any kind of household appliance, a refrigerator that was capable of making ice in precisely two minutes. How did he die? He died a lonely man, unsatisfied. There's been questions about him coming to faith at the end, and I don't know about those. I just know that there was a lifetime spent in pursuit and never finding satisfaction. Now, even if you're not a Christian here, and you think this is just a bunch of Christians speak, let me just remind you, you know, that, that money does not last. It can't last. That money cannot solve any heartache in your life. That true emotional heartache and loneliness, money cannot spare you from that. Money cannot save you from death. Nobody can buy their way out of death. That money cannot develop character. So, so even if you're not a Christian here, I, I would remind you that money is a poor substitute for a true God. And this is why I love upholding Christ as the source of contentment. You know, Paul says, I learn contentment. He said, I've known plenty and I've known once, but he's learned contentment. And, and he, he, he says in, um, in Philippians 4, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now that verse is usually a memory verse at the beginning of your Christian life, and it's a verse that you pull out if you have to leap over tall buildings or stop speeding bullets. It's the verse that's applied to everything. But the verse really is about helping us endure in this life contentedly. Because in Christ, he strengthens us. Christ is our treasure. Christ is the one that, that, that makes all these other glitzy, shiny, pretty little things that are dancing before our eyes for our attention. And he says, I'm better. I'm enough for you. So how do we crush this, this monster? I mean, how do we put a knife into this love of things and the abundance of things? Well, let's go back to the parable and look at the words that Jesus gave God spoke. Um, notice what he says here. He says, you fool. I mean, to, for the divine to call you a fool, if that isn't a warning, you fool, he says, this night your soul is required of you. The first step in terms of killing this sin is to remember your end. Consider the brevity of your life. This man was under the delusion that if he stores up enough, if he secures enough, that he's going to be able to take his life easy. He's going to be able to relax. He's going to be able to eat, drink, and be merry. This is American retirement, that, that we're going to store it all up and we're going to coast into the sunset and enjoy life. And he says, you fool, this very night. He criticizes the man for short-sightedness to recognize the brevity of our lives. That somehow we think that if we can organize the pieces in our life, that, that somehow that's going to propel us to a future that we hope for. And, and it may. Again, please hear me. And we pray for, for me to preach clearly and for you to hear well, I'm not advancing or I'm not denying the importance of some sort of retirement. 
but it's the resting in that retirement. It, it's, the, it's the building up of a retirement without the consideration of that night when your soul is required of you. You know, the scriptures over and over tell us to not be presumptuous upon, upon God for our lives. He says in James, he says, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Isn't that a type of prayer that rarely comes out of our mouth? If it's your will, God, I'll be breathing tomorrow. And do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. One Greek philosopher said, all men think it is only the other man that is mortal. We have trouble coming to terms with our own mortality. There is value for us to consider. If this very night my life is required of me, what will I say to him? What has my life consisted of? He calls him a fool too because he doesn't even know who will get it. He says in the, in the parable, whose will it be? You know, we strive and, and we work and we're diligent and we exercise all of our skill and effort for something that we don't even know to whom it will go. Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who, by the way, died with a lot of toys. Solomon said this, I hated all the things I had toyed for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. And yet he will have control over all the work into which I poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Think about it. It's meaningless. Once you die, who knows? So I, I think we want to, to, to put greed to death. We have to be wise in numbering our days. You know, Augustine, the great church father, said that the most effectual medicine for the disease of avarice is to think daily on your death. To give word to it, the Trappist monks, it's a one brand of monks within the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they used to have a tradition. Of course, they're in a monastery. They have a plot of ground that each one was given for where they would be buried. And every day they would have to go out and take one scoop of dirt, digging their own grave, reminding them, this is where I'll be. Now, it, seem, it may seem morbid to you, but in this world of, of everything's at 10,000 miles an hour, it's good to consider the brevity of our lives. How fast time goes. I, I think it's the mercy of God, and you've heard me repeat this. Those of you who have been here with Karen and I all these years, you've heard me say a hundred times, and I will not tire in telling you, that it is the grace of God that we gray and that we age. Because there is no way that anybody can live without that constant reminder. Nobody's going to say to God, I didn't know. I didn't know life was passing so fast. You can see it in your face, in the wrinkles. In fact, every night when you go to bed, the Puritans would often remind their people that you lay down in your bed like you will be laid in a box. You sleep in bed like you will sleep. Why? God is being merciful to us to say, consider your end. In what does your life consist? Where are your treasures? What do you hope for most? So, so consider your end. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you would consider the treasures of your heart. You would consider the desires. Notice what, notice what Jesus says here. He says, when God renders judgment upon this man, he says, you have laid up treasures for yourself. You have, you know, 
you have put up, what, what are your desires? You know, what do you hope for most? You know, d- what gathers the most of your mental space in terms of time? A, a good place to begin would be looking at your checkbook. Uh, that tends to reveal uh, what is most important to us. So if a CPA came into your life and, and, and he did a quick analysis of all your spending habits and, and you opened up all your books to him and, and he reviewed all the things that you spent your money on, if he didn't know you except for the data that he saw, what would he think about what you loved? What would he understand was your treasures? See, we have trouble discerning greed. I, I would almost say this, that a good starting place for determining if you struggle with greed is if you don't think you do, you probably do. Uh, that, that's probably a good starting place. You know, only 2% of Americans think that they are in the upper class. Only 2%. Now, Tim Keller explains why. So few put themselves in the upper class, even though they are. He says, because we all look at whatever socioeconomic bracket we live in. And wherever we are in that bracket, in North Raleigh, this is a nice bracket. It's a nice bracket we live in. And so this bracket, wherever we, there's always somebody better off than us. And so we can feel like, ah, you know what, I'm kind of living frugally. I'm not living as nice as so-and-so. So I went on this uh, website called globallistrich.com. <clears throat> and what they do is uh, you can type in a salary, and it will, uh, it will put you in the ranking of everybody in the world and where you are. Now, I recognize, you know, in terms of these surveys, they can be fraught with some problems. What's the sample, you know... It, are they only taking people 18 and older? Are they taking people 22 and older? But, but it's a good exercise nonetheless. So if you type in, let's say, $75,000 for an annual salary, it'll say that there are 6.6 million people richer than you. That's a lot of people. 6.6 million. Now there's 7 billion walking around the place. So it would put you in, in the 1%. But let's even just say it's not that high. But you're still within that upper bracket. But, but it's hard for us to admit that. Because if we don't feel greedy, then we don't think we're greedy. Uh, we go to the extremes, like the shopaholic or like the miser, and we say we're not like them. I would just ask you uh, that as you consider your heart's desire, ask God to reveal. Go to Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me and try me. See if there is any wicked way. Ask the Lord to reveal to you the degree to which greed has gripped you. And then confess that to God. But before you confess it, and I was helped by a, um, by a great little article a friend sent, make sure you're grieving over the sin. In other words, think about how we have put things and people and places and lifestyles above God in terms of our worth or in terms of what we love. And, and allow contrition to move into your soul. Allow that grieving to take place, and it will give birth to a more genuine confession. Okay, the third thing I would ask you to consider in terms of putting greed to death would be to consider or think about your generosity. You know, being rich towards God was the final accusation that this man received. You are not rich towards God. Being rich towards God is more than just giving. It includes that, obviously. But what gifts God has given you, how have they been used for the benefit of others? The money that God has given you, the placement in life, how have you leveraged all that you have 
for the advancement of his kingdom or his people? You know, ask yourselves these questions. You know, how rich have I been towards God? Now, you know, if you you reading in Luke chapter 12, beyond our passage from 32 on, you're going to see Jesus speak about that God provides for the flowers of the fields and the birds of the air. How much more important are you? And so what Jesus is saying is, you and I, the Christian alone, has the capacity and the ability and the freedom to be generous. Only the Christian can be generous. Remember, the opposite of greed is not asceticism. The opposite of greed is generosity. It's giving. It's giving because of all that has been given to us. In fact, Jesus just says later in uh, Luke chapter 12, 32, in the very next verse, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So if you're a Christian here, you are to hear these words with unfathomable encouragement. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure. I mean, the beautiful line. To give you the kingdom, you have the kingdom. So what's the next line he gives? Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money bags that don't grow old. With the treasure in the heavens, it does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, we don't take these scriptures literally because if everybody sold their possessions, nobody could give anything. But, but we want to understand them in the context of he has given us the kingdom, therefore we can be generous. And we can be rich towards God by being rich towards God's people. Draw your mind to Matthew 25 when Jesus says, you know, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. Hey, we never saw you, Jesus. We never saw you in this context. He goes, well, when you didn't do it to the least of these brethren, you didn't do it to me. So being rich to God is being rich to God's people. So I would ask you to consider how rich have you been? Now, I wouldn't stand up here and tell you a percentage or amount to give. I would simply say this to you. Why don't you look at what you give and how you give and let that be a reflection of the level of trust that you have in God. That's what it is, right? To the degree that you trust, you can be generous and cheerful about it. C.S. Lewis has a great kind of, for me at least, it was um, a great um, standard or guide. And, and he said, if, if you don't if, if you don't prevent yourself from doing anything you want to do, you're probably not giving enough. You know, if you can do everything you want to do whenever you want to do it, you're probably not giving enough. I, I don't think that's a real strong standard, but I think it's a starting place for you. But giving breaks the back of greed. Let me remind you, Richard Warmbrand was a Romanian pastor, and he was uh, persecuted during the reign of Ceausescu, and and uh, suffered greatly. Many of you know the name. He's since passed away, but endured a lot for Christ. In jail, of course, you have no money to tithe, right? But, but envy and covetousness and greed can take place in jail, just like he can in North Raleigh. And, and so every tenth day, he would give away all his food. He would give his food to other prisoners who were hungry, just to break the back of greed, to break the back of covetousness. I must have, and I can't live without. And he showed, no, that he could live without. It's a good example for us. And the last thing I would say to kill pride is to consider Jesus, the storyteller here. It's interesting that Jesus is telling us about this parable because he's about to walk it out. You know, he's about to divest himself of all his treasure in heaven by, by hum, humbling himself, not just to taking on flesh and dwelling among us. That is significant in itself. But he's humbled himself to the point of shedding his own blood, bearing our sins, bearing the wrath of God. This is the gospel. See, the gospel is very much related to our finances. 
And, and, and Paul brings these two together when he speaks in 2 Corinthians. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Jesus entering poverty for us, meaning not just the incarnation, but the suffering and the death that he endured for us, the gospel, that he would save us. He would divest himself of his treasure to make us his treasure. That the gospel and love for Christ, the affections of our heart over all that he is and all that he's done, we can never tire of going back to this well and drinking from this water, satisfying ourselves that he has done this. And then all the trinkets and all the temptations and all the shiny, glitzy little things in life that are seeking to draw our attention off the road, that we hold them in comparison with him. And, and they pale in comparison. What in this world could compare to him? for us. So we have defining greed, the excessive love for money or the things that money can buy. We have the symptoms that manifest itself. We usually rotate somewhere between the miser and the shopaholic, and the dangers of it are significant. It's going to alienate you from yourself, from your neighbor, from your God, and ultimately from the joy that you really want, which is the insidious thing about greed. And then the way to kill it is to consider your end. Consider the brevity of your life. Put yourself <clears throat> the day before your death. What would you wish that you had changed? And then write those things down. And then consider where your treasure is right now. And invite someone into your life. If you're in a discipleship group, if you're in a care group, invite someone... Get them to help. Sometimes the heart, it's like trying to nail jello. It moves and shapes and morph. And get someone to help you ask questions, to help you discern perhaps where pockets of greed might be. And then consider your generosity. And then ultimately at the end, and always at the end, consider Christ more glorious than anything in this world. So let's take a minute now and consider these things. Uh, it's a lot, I know. Um, there's only two more to go. <clears throat> and... Uh, but let's consider these things, take a few minutes, confess or thank God for grace or ask for help to discern, and then I'll pray for us in a moment. Father, thank you for showing to us Christ, his beauty, um, his worthiness. What, what can compare with such goodness and grace and mercy to us? Father, I, I ask simply for us as a church that uh, you would give us an unbridled zeal, uh, an insatiable hunger for Christ. Uh, to, to enjoy him, to consider him of great value. Whom have I in heaven but you? And, and what on earth do I desire besides you? Let that be the cry of our heart for Christ. 
Father, reveal to us the things that we need to know. You are a God that is involved in the day-to-day sanctification of our souls. Reveal to us those areas of life that we have made, points of treasure and points of worship that are, that, that are not worthy of such human veneration. Reveal those to us and then give us the grace along with brothers and sisters uh, to, to put those to death, to remember our mortality, to, to consider our generosity, but, but to consider Christ as more worthy than all these things. And Father, lead us forward, incrementally transforming us from glory to glory, even from this word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.